Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello and welcome, history friends, patrons all, to our 30 Years War mini-series on 17th Century Warfare, episode 12. Last time we watched the tactics of the drill become more refined and put into practice once again, where Gustavus Adolphus not just revolutionised how warfare happened, he also went through a very significant test. The Battle of Breitenfeld where he essentially turned the Thirty Years' War on its head and pretty much guaranteed that it would be a Thirty Years' War rather than just a Habsburg War of Victory. Now that we've looked at Gustavus and we've looked at several innovators, I want to look at some case studies here and I want to look at a few instances, not just necessarily where these revolutions were put into practice, but also where genuine changes happened in the actual structure and habits of states. Today we're going to look at the Habsburgs and their standing army. And we're going to trace this institution as well as its maturation over the 17th century. And we'll conclude that crisis, be it from the Ottoman theatre or within the Thirty Years' War itself, provided fertile ground for emergency measures, which standing armies were eventually born of. The Thirty Years' War did of course change things. It changed how the Habsburgs made war in both branches in Austria and in Spain, It also paved the way in Austria, which is where I'll be focusing today, for the advent of a new, grossly expensive institution which would remain in place, incredibly enough, from the moment of Wallenstein's appointment to the dissolution of the Austro-Hungarian Empire in 1918. This was a standing army, as we've said, and it would be commanded invariably by the Habsburg Holy Roman Emperor and by the Habsburg Austrian Emperor. Even while the Habsburgs changed, that fundamental fact of European politics remained the same. You needed to have an army to actually have your way on the continent. And few armies have been more maligned, but actually had more successes, surprisingly enough, than this institution. And today we're going to look at it. So without any further ado, I'll now take you to the Habsburg hereditary lands. (laughs) 
Hi, I'm B.T. Newberg of the brand new podcast, The History of Sex. We explode gender norms by exploring their incredible variety across time. In today's culture of gay marriage, trans rights, and a new politically correct term every day, things can feel a little chaotic. It makes you long for the good old days. When men were men and women were women, and nothing could be more clear, right? Well, sorry to break it to you, but... Those days never existed. If there's one thing the history of sex teaches us, it's that sex and gender have varied fantastically across different eras and cultures. For example, did you know that the Nazis encouraged young women to bear a child out of wedlock for the fatherland? Or that pre-contact Hawaii had no such thing as marriage? Or that ancient Romans had no concept of orientation, only a vague sense of preference for one sex or the other? That's the kind of stuff that we'll be covering in our new podcast, The History of Sex. Find us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get podcasts. The History of Sex. This episode of 17th Century Warfare is brought to you by the Agora Podcast Network. Specifically, a very short survey I would love for you to do. It takes like five minutes at the very most. That's if you're super slow with it. And it's literally a matter of ticking boxes. You could do it while listening to this right now because the link will be in the description. Or you could do it any other time while you're traveling, sitting on the toilet, running, all these different things. I don't know how you do it while you're running. Don't know why I said that. But you can do it any time and it's super easy. And it will help us Agora podcasters reach you with better advertising deals, better content in general, and it'll just help us understand you more. We'd like to get to know you better, and you can help us do that by clicking the link in the description below and taking a tiny few minutes out of your day to help us out. Thanks so much, and also make sure you check that History of Sex podcast that was just plugged right there. Brandon Newberg is a friend of the show, and he also played the delegation game as... Makino Nabuaki, in case you weren't aware. So, if you want to show your support for him and make use of such needless facts as those, check out The History of Sex. I think that's the first time I've ever said sex on this podcast, but now I've said it so many times, I suppose we've broken down some boundaries or something. In any case, check that podcast out. It's a new venture, it's very interesting, very exciting, and it just shows how broad and how detailed all these different podcasts can be. I remember back in the day when there wasn't enough podcasts to even fill two hands and now you can't even count them all on your fingers, toes, the fingers and toes of your family and your friends and all those other digits besides. But enough of that, let's get into episode 12. So the impact of revolutions upon the military was a palpable feature of the 17th century, but warfare had an additional impact upon the development and administration of many states caught in the crossfire. One such entity was the hereditary lands of the Habsburg Holy Roman Emperors, which included a considerable swathe of south-central Europe, rooted on Austria and propped up by the Kingdom of Bohemia. Of particular interest to us in this portion of the story is an emperor who was central to the course of the Thirty Years' War, Ferdinand II. The journey which Emperor Ferdinand II, who reigned from 1619 to 1637, the journey which he endured was a stark one. In the beginning of his reign, he was too weak even to instruct his vassals to act without considerable bribes. Yet by the end of his life, his dynasty's hereditary lands had been reinforced consolidated and recast. Thanks to the ravages of war, 
Emperor Ferdinand would effectively bring the Austrian Empire to life, and he would do it largely thanks to the creation of a standing army. If explaining the origins of the Austrian Empire is an exercise not for the faint of heart, then explaining how that empire acquired and then developed its army is a still more demanding task. Depending on whom you ask as well, the Austrian army was a lazy and unprofessional institution, rotten to the core with corruption, outmatched by its rivals, and burdened with a myriad of national and cultural problems. We may have the image of the First World War, because... That is generally what most people know about the Habsburgs, without even realising that the Habsburg army and the Habsburg empire dated back to the 15th century. And, most notably here of course, the Habsburg empire played a critical role in the Thirty Years' War. To play a critical role, its army must have been pretty good. Perhaps it was a brilliantly trained and brilliantly led army. Perhaps the Habsburg army pushed the Turk away from Europe. It expanded the Habsburg patrimony into the Balkans, and perhaps it was even characterised by such military geniuses as Eugene of Savoy. How could it be both of those things at once? Well, in short, the Austrian army has been around a long time, and its record as a result is rather patchy. In the opening paragraph of his book, which examines the Austrian army from 1619 to 1918, the historian Richard Bassett writes... Austria, the Austrian writer Hermann Barr wrote, has not been lucky with its biographers. If this is the case for Imperial Austria as a structure, it is also true for the Imperial and Royal Army, whose efforts supported the Empire for so many centuries. Perhaps it was Talleyrand who set the tone for later 19th and 20th century disparagement with his famous quip that Austria has the tiresome habit of always being beaten. One doesn't have to look particularly far for a negative opinion on the Habsburg monarchy, and in some cases, the criticisms are justified. Much like the other multinational empires of the 19th and 20th centuries, the Habsburgs faced grave challenges which undermined the powers of the centre and eventually caused the whole edifice to splinter into disparate parts. Considering these insurmountable problems, one could be forgiven for asking how the Habsburgs managed to last so long. Emperor Ferdinand II did much to centralise the Habsburg hereditary lands, which was an important step towards creating what would become first the Austrian, and then in 1867, the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Pivotal though he was, though, the question of the Habsburg Empire's longevity is answered less by the emperors that led it, and more by the armies which defended it. Thus, we must turn our attention to the creation of the Austrian army to really understand how all of this happened and was maintained. By investigating its origins and tracing its development from such humble beginnings, perhaps the Habsburg's ability to adapt and improvise will become more apparent. Regardless, as a key player in the conflict, it's important to explain how the Habsburgs made war in the 17th century and beyond. This investigation will require us to ask what came before this Austrian army, in addition to the challenges it faced, and of course, what the costs of creating this army was to the Habsburg family, both in terms of sheer financial burdens and prestige. 
Although it wouldn't be until Albrecht of Wallenstein was enlisted in 1625 as Emperor Ferdinand II's personal mercenary that the Austrian Habsburgs would possess an army all of their own, the fusion of the military with the dynasty was an event that occurred only a few years before this on a tense and insufferably hot afternoon of the 5th of June 1619. It was during that afternoon that a few things happened. In a scene which I will return to later, a deputation of Bohemian Protestants barged into Ferdinand's Hofburg Palace and demanded concessions from their emperor. Devoid of allies and lacking any proper army of his own, it seemed entirely likely that the beleaguered Ferdinand would accept the demands. This largely forgotten scene in the context of the eventual crushing of the Bohemian Revolt is an immensely important one to bear in mind, because it was here, just in the nick of time, that an armed detachment of cavalry, led by Ferdinand's brother of all people, arrived to save the day. On this occasion, and for the remainder of the Habsburg Empire's existence, the dynasty's fortunes would be fused with the fortunes of the army. This dynasty would refrain from risking the whole army in battle, and would never allow it to be destroyed fully. The dynasty would consistently seek to reform its army, to improve it and expand upon it. Efforts would be made to draw better leaders and to learn from its mistakes. This was because subsequent Habsburg emperors accepted what Ferdinand had come to realise on that hot afternoon of the 5th of June 1619. That being that the Habsburg family's position wasn't based upon the prestige or value of its imperial title or certainly its rebellious bohemian kingship but on the power and strength of its armed forces. Ferdinand II, saved from the shame of making an ignominious and unholy concession to his enemies, never forgot the impression which the timely arrival of his brother's cavalry made that afternoon, and he sought to bring this lesson to its logical conclusion by crafting an army exclusively for the Habsburg family's usage. To put it in perspective, when Ferdinand arrived in Graz, in Styria, that is in Inner Austria, in 1595, the date was Easter Sunday, and he had just finished his Jesuit education in Bavaria. He asked his subjects to join him in Mass, but not a single burgher or townsperson appeared. This wasn't because they disliked Ferdinand, but instead because Styria, the Catholic, Jesuit-educated Ferdinand's home, was overwhelmingly Protestant. And this wasn't just true for Styria, it was also true for a great number of the Austrian estates. Estates being those regional assemblies who would be called upon to make local decisions and in certain circumstances levy taxes or soldiers on the population. So what could Ferdinand do? Well, his Jesuit education had instilled within him a sense of the missionary. He set to work transforming the situation in his homeland and turning his education to his advantage to reverse the downward trend of Catholicism in the region. His counter-reformation zeal and his later intolerance qualified him as one of the most militant Catholics of his age. While his efforts did result in an upturn of Catholic converts in the years that followed, what they absolutely did not produce was a sense of loyalty in Austria to the future Holy Roman Emperor. If this seems surprising, considering the fact that we always allude to Austria as the base of Ferdinand and his successors, consider that when the Bohemian Revolt broke out in summer 1618, among those principalities to mirror the Bohemian behaviour were Ferdinand's own Austrian estates. 
Even while not all such estates across Ferdinand's hereditary possessions rose up in revolt, one historian estimated that just over a third of his Austrian subjects turned against their emperor, Ferdinand's powers were still significantly eroded. In addition, while the Habsburg hereditary lands extended to Hungary, Royal Hungary was occupied by the Prince of Transylvania, who was himself a vassal of the Ottoman Empire, and this further undermined Habsburg security. With the Bohemians engaging in a religiously and politically charged revolution against Ferdinand's authority, his own estates in Austria gathering in opposition against him, and the Prince of Transylvania conquering portions of Habsburg Hungary for himself, we should not be surprised to find Ferdinand prostrate before the cross by the following year, in summer 1619, when that aforementioned deputation from Bohemia came to visit him. While he would regain the initiative and then some in time, this remarkable reassertion of Habsburg power was not within Ferdinand's imagination in summer 1619. He had only survival on his mind, and he was immensely fortunate that the allies he did have, such as the Bavarians, did not abandon him like many others. Thanks to his double marriage with Maximilian of Bavaria's family, it appeared that blood was thicker than water. The Duke of Bavaria would save the Hullierman Emperor and raise an army to fight for the Catholic interest as much as the Habsburg interest. Many of us are familiar with the story that followed. It forms essentially the first plank of the story of the Thirty Years' War. Maximilian of Bavaria's Catholic League army, which the Duke of Bavaria and other Catholic princes paid for, and which the brilliantly talented Count Tilly commanded, obliterated the enemies of the Habsburgs in the first few years of the 1620s, and completely reversed the initially dire situation of Ferdinand and his family, until, as we saw, Gustavus Adolphus checked the Emperor's progress at Breitenfeld. Yet Ferdinand was faced in each of these occasions with a dilemma akin to a crisis. Above all, he was faced with the uncomfortable truth of his own inherent weakness, especially when it came to the unified and religiously homogenous lands of the Duke of Bavaria. Land was power in the 17th century, but the Holy Roman Emperor had alienated, or lost, much of his own personal lands by the time the actual war came. Indeed, it would be accurate to say that Ferdinand's own hereditary lands and miniature kingdoms had turned against him. Without these lands, Ferdinand couldn't draw taxes, and if he couldn't draw taxes, he couldn't pay for any army of his own. Those unfamiliar with what happened next may wonder how, if Ferdinand couldn't pay for his own army, he was able to persuade Maximilian of Bavaria and the Catholic League to finance one. Surely the Duke of Bavaria wouldn't raise an army and pay for it out of the kindness of his heart. Surely he would expect payment from the Emperor in return? Indeed, he did expect payment. But Ferdinand was immensely fortunate that the Duke of Bavaria accepted... Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Payment in kind, rather than actual coins, which he didn't possess. Ferdinand infamously passed the outlawed Elector Palatine's electoral title to the Duke of Bavaria in lieu of pay, a highly unconstitutional and bitterly resented act in the Protestant camp once it was discovered. Yet Ferdinand was also forced to pass Upper Austria into Maximilian's hands, which the newly established elector would be allowed to tax, as if these lands were his own, so that he could squeeze the lands in a way that the emperor could not. Indeed, even if he had wanted to, Ferdinand didn't have the men in place to squeeze his own lands, and he lacked the soldiers to defend against any repercussions which might follow. Ferdinand weakened and diluted the constitution of the Holy Roman Empire as much as the reach of his own dynasty in order to empower the army of his allies and defeat his enemies. Initially, with the newly enshrined Elector of Bavaria firmly on his side, Ferdinand's fortunes soared. In the long term, Ferdinand would never be able to win the war against foreign powers without an army of his own, especially if these powers threatened Bavaria and Maximilian was forced to pull this army out of the field back to Munich for some home defence. The inferred message was thus clear. Ferdinand needed an army to defend and fight for the Catholic and Habsburg positions simultaneously, but what he needed was an army which he could command, and which answered directly to him. Enter stage a Catholic bohemian of minor noble stock, with a penchant for command and grand ambitions, Albrecht von Wallenstein. At first glance, there seems little difference between Maximilian's fee and Wallenstein's. Both individuals forced Ferdinand to hand over lands and titles instead of money, so long as he lacked the latter. But the distinction is important because Wallenstein's force, or at least some iteration of it, was to remain a fixture of Habsburg society for the next 300 years, whereas Maximilian Bavaria's Catholic League force would not. The key difference between Wallenstein's force and Maximilian of Bavaria's force was loyalty. Wallenstein answered to the emperor and no one else. He worked in his interests and he answered to him before all others, and he obeyed his overarching commands. In return, Wallenstein expected payment not in money, for Ferdinand's treasury was empty, as Wallenstein himself noted, but in lands and titles. Where was Ferdinand to get such lands and titles that did not adversely affect his authority or stain his reputation, as had the deals with Maximilian of Bavaria? Conveniently for both interested parties, 
the Bohemian Revolt had created a pool of disenfranchised rebels whose lands and titles, seemingly, were all ripe for the taking. Ferdinand, having come close to collapse in summer 1619, found himself only a few years later in a position to drastically and dramatically reorganise the lands of Bohemia and of other German princes on a scale never before experienced by any Habsburg potentate. The significance of this fact is often glossed over when it is noted that Wallenstein was paid with half the land of Bohemia or that Bohemia itself was totally transformed from the religiously plural medieval kingdom it had once been into the centralised Catholic appendage of the Habsburg patrimony. This act in time did not merely facilitate the creation of a Habsburg army answerable to the emperor, it also enabled successive Habsburg emperors to consolidate their position in their hereditary lands and craft what we would recognise as the Austrian Empire in the process. These transfers of land, the reversal of hundreds of years of history and their replacement with a system that thoroughly benefited the Habsburgs None of these actions would have been possible without first the defeat of the Bohemian Revolt and then the conquering of these lands by Wallenstein. Ferdinand was keen to ensure that his new Generalissimo, who gained a great deal from his partnership with the Habsburgs, remained devoted to his cause, especially as Denmark became involved in the war from the mid-1620s. Denmark had undergone her own military revolution, and much like her neighbours, had experienced a kind of revolution as the old feudal knights were replaced with a professional cavalry service owned and maintained by the state. Denmark was, as we will certainly learn later, one of the most powerful kingdoms in Europe, and certainly the richest in the Baltic. It would seem that Ferdinand had bitten off more than he could chew as King Christian IV of Denmark entered the war backed by numerous enemies of the Habsburgs including the Dutch, English and Palatine supporters. But here, Ferdinand's preparations paid off. Two armies now marched in Christian's direction, where before only one had been in the field. One of these armies was the familiar force commanded by Count Tilly and answerable to the Catholic League, but the other, significantly, was the Emperor's personal force commanded by Wallenstein. In these circumstances, Christian was overwhelmed and he was chased up the Jutland Peninsula while his allies fell away. All the while, Wallenstein saw his stock rise the more that he helped his master. Indeed, as Richard Bassett wrote, None benefited more from this unique redistribution of Bohemian land than Wallenstein himself, who set about erecting at the heart of Europe, along the strategically vital Bohemian and Saxon frontier, a territory which would furnish him not only with prestige, but with the wealth in agriculture and minerals needed to sustain such a vast army. No costs were to be incurred by the imperial house. All Wallenstein sought was the required charter of authority and the freedom to choose his officers and recruitment depots. The charter was quickly granted by Ferdinand, who also gave Wallenstein the impressive designation of General Colonel Field Captain of the Imperial Armada. By granting him such sweeping powers and by showering him with as many titles as he could find, Ferdinand sought to retain Wallenstein and thus retain that man's standing army, which had become the key to Ferdinand's overwhelming success. Indeed, this success proved the downfall of both men in the end, for even while Wallenstein was loyal to his master, he did not approve of all of his master's ends, such as the militant counter-reformation policies Ferdinand sought 
enshrined in the 1629 Edict of Restitution. Wallenstein was made a prince, and he came to possess three duchies, carving out the position of supreme commander by that same year, so that it was rumoured even the emperor himself wouldn't dare to cross him. In the end, though, Wallenstein was more vulnerable than one might have expected, and he was especially vulnerable to the machinations and schemes of jealous former friends than those talents of his enemies. Wallenstein was assassinated on Ferdinand's orders in 1634, hardly the best way for an emperor to show thanks to his loyal subject. In any case, the fruits of the curious relationship between Wallenstein and his emperor was that institution we alluded to earlier, a standing army for the Habsburg monarchy. This fruit was enjoyed during Ferdinand III's reign as well, and it was this emperor who clarified the Habsburg family's determination to maintain a standing army, even with the conclusion of the Thirty Years' War. Ferdinand III issued a decree in 1649, which announced that of the 52 regiments raised during the Thirty Years' War, a total of 19 were to be maintained permanently and not dissolved along with the rest. While this did mean that the Habsburgs would be more than cutting their army in half, it also meant that, for the first time ever, the Austrian Habsburgs, the Emperor, would possess a standing army of his own, 21,000 men strong. It was this standing army that Wallenstein had created, and which had been nurtured after his assassination into a fighting force loyal above all to the Habsburg family. Notwithstanding the immense difficulties which Ferdinand II and III experienced in keeping this army afloat during the subsequent years, it was never once supposed that it would simply cease to exist. Once Ferdinand II had become used to possessing his own force, he felt crippled without it. Indeed, in 1635, he combined the Catholic League army with his own, and a German imperial army was the result, its central goal being the ejection of the foreign invader from the empire's lands. This force counted an innumerable cast of Germans among its ranks, but it answered to the emperor, and its commanders received its orders from him and him alone. Reforms in discipline and tactics went hand in glove with the pervading ripples of revolutions underway in Europe at the time, and while the Habsburgs did learn much from their adversaries, the stacking up of defeats in the 1640s was a testament to the fact, not necessarily that the Habsburg army was ineffective, but more that the Habsburg corps was fracturing. Fortunately, by the 1640s, peace was on the minds of most other states, so Wallenstein's legacy army would not be seen to crumble. Its nucleus limped on, even if much of its traits and qualities unique to that generalissimo were forgotten. By 1697, Eugene of Savoy was able to marvel at the quality of the Habsburg cavalry, which he brought to great effect against the Turks during the Battle of Zenta. The battle which, if you can remember all the way back to a few years ago, was the scene which we opened this mini-series with. The 1700s were destined to be years of reform and increasing distinction for Austria's army, and it quickly became impossible to imagine Austria existing without a standing army all year round, while the same could be said, of course, for her Prussian, French and Spanish neighbours. Europe had come a long way since the High Middle Ages, where armies were not held together by much more than limited terms of service or rudimentary contractual obligation to one's feudal lord. Standing armies became the norm for the Austrian Habsburgs, and it must be said that this trend was entrenched within Habsburg habits during the Thirty Years' War. 
without the connection made between Ferdinand II and Wallenstein, and without, arguably, the epiphany reached by Ferdinand to the effect that his power would depend on an army he could rely upon, the development of the Habsburgs themselves could have been very different indeed. By the end of the Thirty Years' War, while the Austrian Habsburgs had exhausted much of their resources, they had established over their hereditary lands, and Bohemia in particular, an iron grip which they were to retain for the remainder of their dynasty's reign in the heart of Europe. Indeed, it must be said that a byproduct of Ferdinand's crushing of the Bohemian Revolt and his forceful incorporation of this kingdom into the Austrian family was that the Habsburgs had a far wider and more docile tax base than it ever had before once the conflict ended. In addition to this tax windfall, the historian John A. Mears made the point that Ferdinand's quest to empower Wallenstein and protect his investments led the Holy Roman Emperor to bulldoze over the traditional checks and balances on his authority in Bohemia and in Austria. Ferdinand forbade any independent recruiters from operating in Bohemia, Austria, Silesia or further German lands, which preserved Wallenstein's potential pool of recruits for years to come. This ruling was incredibly significant, even if it has been mostly forgotten by historians. The old system was resplendent in its headache-inducing complexity and restrictiveness. The old system required that representatives of the estates, whose influence over military affairs reached a peak in the first two decades of the 17th century, should regulate the enlistment and quartering of troops, and retained extensive police over their respective territories. Predictably enough, the rights of the estates in this regard undermined the development of a permanent standing army because, short of purchasing a horde of mercenaries, the only means that the emperors had to replenish their forces was through conscription of native soldiers, and if they wanted to do this, they would first have to get the approval of local estates. Under the old system, regional assemblies had also acquired regiments and commission officers of their own. To Ferdinand's chagrin, these forces were largely independent of his control. In the Austrian and Bohemian territories, the estates were technically obliged to provide military assistance to their emperor at their own expense whenever he was attacked by a foreign enemy. Yet this qualification was important, since the technicality over who attacked who first could be thrown in Ferdinand's face as an excuse to not get involved. In addition, those levies that did show up were often of limited value because they served for such a limited time, and even then, they only served to defend the lands from which they had come from. They considered it contrary to their privileges to be compelled to undertake military service outside the borders of their own territories, and they'd never be suitable, then, to merge into a large, cross-border standing army loyal to Ferdinand. The men assembled were loyal more to their assemblies or local nobles than the distant emperor, and they could never be relied upon fully in battle because of this. If this explains why Ferdinand was so bereft of soldiers once the Bohemian Revolt broke out in 1618 and worsened the following year, then what Ferdinand did over the 1620s transformed the issue altogether. In 1627, in a ruling which affected Bohemia most of all, Ferdinand eliminated these independent actions and entitlements in the Habsburg lands. Henceforth, there was only one figure who mattered when it came to raising soldiers, and that figure was the Holy Roman Emperor. These repressive policies were, of course, a flagrant attack upon the privileges of the estates, many of whom had only recently rebelled, and they would surely not take further restrictions lying down. 
But Ferdinand knew what to expect. By the time this ruling had come to pass, the emperor had in his employ an enormous army commanded by Wallenstein, and he could easily direct this army towards any trouble spots at a moment's notice. Any disgruntled persons, which included those mercenary captains in these regions, who had grown used to taking advantage of the emperor's disadvantageous position, were shown the sword or were instructed how they might signal their compliance, and many chose the latter option. Granted, once the Thirty Years' War ended, and Ferdinand no longer had a 100,000 of Wallenstein's legions at his disposal, some concessions were made to those estates and lands which had helped see the Habsburgs through to the end, but nothing like the old system of local checks and balances on the emperor in his own hereditary lands was ever seen again. While it is true to say that the Thirty Years' War loosened the grip which the Habsburgs could be said to hold over the Holy Roman Empire, the Peace of Westphalia actually increased the authority which local princes and potentates had over their own subjects. Estates, in other words, were becoming increasingly weakened at a local level, when, paradoxically, the Peace of Westphalia provided for more representative institutions at the very top levels of the empire itself. This transformation in the empire took some time to be fully felt, but neither Ferdinand II nor his son wasted much time. Ferdinand II in particular paved the way not just for the standing armies which would win so much glory and fame for Vienna, but also the fusing of Habsburg lands closer together, so that in time, this once loosely aligned collection of states in Bohemia, Silesia and Austria became an empire in its own right. None of this would have been possible without Wallenstein, who not only conquered the Habsburg enemies, but also conquered the restrictions placed upon Ferdinand's position as Holy Roman Emperor. So in this episode we've been confronted with some fascinating revelations. Above all, we've learned that Austria's standing army and the fortunes of the Habsburg family were reinforced and guaranteed thanks to the successes of Wallenstein and the unintended byproducts of his command. While the military revolution did reach Habsburg armies, it was arguably this revolution, forged in the fires of the Thirty Years' War, that proved the most significant of all. I hope you'll join me next time then, history friends, where we'll continue our analysis of the military revolution as we examine some interesting sieges. For now though, my name is Zach, and this has been the 12th episode of our Thirty Years' War miniseries, looking at 17th century warfare. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll be seeing you all soon. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.